Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1615-1615, and thank you for joining me today. I don't want to forget, I hope you had a chance to listen to our last episode, Flashback Friday, of Walter E. Williams. He passed away age 84, excellent economist, talked a lot about African-American issues, and he was uh, skeptical of these government programs and anti-poverty programs and a real scholar, just, just a great guy. Anyway, that we had him on the show a couple of times, and on Flashback Friday, just the last episode, we replayed one of his uh, somewhat recent interviews with us on the show. So uh, check that out. Make sure you don't miss that one. It's a good one. Anyway, today we have an exciting show for you. And I'm not going to tell you too much. You just have to listen to it because it's good stuff. Also, I uh, I traveled. <laughs> I know, I can't believe it. I went on an airplane. First time in 10 months huge record. I'm back home now and got back Friday evening from St. Louis, where I attended a conference there. And who was there? Oh, a bunch of my friends were there, but uh, one of them was our asset protection and estate planning attorney. One of our clients just asked about another attorney today, and it made me think of him. And uh, if you haven't already checked out our webinar on that. Check it out at jasonhartman.com slash protect, jasonhartman.com slash protect. And for extra credit, yeah, we give extra credit here at, uh, at Jason Hartman University. <laughs> and we don't put you into student loan debt for the rest of your life with a degree that nobody is hiring for. See, all of our education here is, number one, it's mostly free, and uh, certainly free on the podcast and the YouTube channel and the webinars. And then you go out and actually create wealth with the stuff you learn here. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? Yes, it is. It is good. Good stuff. So uh, check that webinar out. And for extra credit, also want to remind you, our Alabama webinar is replaying this week jasonhartman.com slash sweet home. No need to put Alabama after that. Just jasonhartman.com slash sweet home and the estate planning and asset protection at jasonhartman.com slash protect. You know what? I don't want to steal the thunder of this interview today, but you are going to like it. Our guest is from Stansbury Research and it's Dan Ferris. You may have read his great writings out there. He's, uh, he's good. And he has a lot to say about the housing market. Is it going to crash? Is it going to crash? 
There goes the bomb dropping, the bomb dropping on the real estate market. Well, today I interviewed for later playing. It's, it'll be coming up maybe next week. I interviewed the president of the National Apartment Owners Association. He was back on the show, had some incredible things to share about rental housing, rental housing demographics, eviction moratoriums, federal housing assistance programs. That's all coming up on the future episode. But today, Dan Ferris is going to teach us some good, good stuff. So I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. And here's Dan. It's my pleasure to welcome Dan Ferris. Uh, you've probably heard his name out there. I've been reading his work for years. He is editor of Extreme Value at Stansberry Research and the host of the Stansberry Investor Hour podcast. Dan, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Great to be here, Jason. It's good to have you on. And you're coming from Vancouver, Washington, right? That is correct. Yes. Uh, sunny on a rare day. sunny day. Yep. <laughs> a rare sunny day. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Well, hey, we appreciate you spending some time with us, Dan. Uh, I guess I'll start with just asking you about your overall take on the economy in these very tumultuous times. It seems like we've got a divided economy, a very uneven recovery, if if we call it a recovery. And, you know, your expectations for the future, I'll just kind of let you take it where you want to start. Well, first things first, it's been an insane year and we had this enormous contraction, this as far as the depth of the contraction, like 1930s depth, obviously a lot faster, <laughs> but, but that kind of depth. And as you say, it's bifurcated, isn't it? There's you know, one part of the economy uh, has really took off, right? The stay-at-home portion, then hospitality and other things have just been crushed. And my fear is that I'm very confident that there we're not going back. You know, pre-COVID, we will never see that again. And, you know, among other things, it's, it's really no great controversial statement to suggest that a lot more people are going to work at home, COVID or not, virus or not. And... Um, you know, it just, it won't be ever be the same again. And travel is the one thing that kind of drives me a little bit crazy because I think we could probably have a lot less restrictions on things like travel and eating out and all that. But uh, man, in the meantime, you can hardly go anywhere. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's a pain in the neck and it's really depressing economically. So I think, and I think the opportunists, the tyrants in government are using this as a, a fantastic excuse for them to just intrude into our lives, gain more control over us and do a lot of very unconstitutional things, you know, right to assemble, right to associate. I mean, nobody talks too much about our right to associate with whomever we want. But yeah. soon there will be contact tracing everywhere. And just, I mean, this is a dictator's dream. It, it's just, <laughs> they must be loving it right now. The, the tyrants it, that are control freaks, right? It is. It is a dictator's dream. And the playbook is, it, to people like us, Jason, it seems so obvious. But what I hear from, you know, people around me, just, you know, people I see from day to day, they think, well, we all need to wear masks and we all need to be careful and we can't, you know, see each other on Thanksgiving and whatnot. And I just think this is insane. 
it's amazing that there are as many voices as there are in the medical community saying, this is ridiculous. It's absurd. We've shut down the country for nothing, but you don't, you hardly ever hear them. You know, you, you might hear that, that person once a week on like Tucker Carlson or something like that, or maybe on you, on your show, but, but you don't hear those voices and they're credible voices that yeah. need to be heard. Of course they are. And Dan, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, everybody loves to bash conspiracy theories, but the reality is there are conspiracies all around us all the time. And what I like to say is that the great conspiracy of, uh, you know, original colon, uh, colonists uh, conspiring against England. I mean, exactly. America was a conspiracy and it was a great one. So, well, you know, what I mean, would they have been called conspiracy wackos with tinfoil hats or founding fathers? No. Yeah, they would have been called militia, you know, by the current current lefty crowd. But but you're exactly right. People know that when they aggregate their resources, they become more powerful. They know that if they're of very modest means, you know, uh, and they know that for sure uh, if they're centimillionaires and billionaires and well-connected people in government, they know, they understand what it means to aggregate power and, and push other folks around. And they right. do it. It's not, it's funny that we have these terms conspiracy theory, because who doesn't know that this is how human beings behave? It's a little yeah. absurd. Right. No, it, it, it is totally. And the conspiracy point that I wanted to make is that it's hard to argue that the mainstream media isn't a coordinated effort. Because like you were saying, you see so few dissenting voices in the mainstream media. They all right. sort of publish the same headlines in lockstep. It's amazing how coordinated it is, uh, you know, whether it be mainstream media or social media and big tech, which I'm lumping all those together. You know, the big yeah. tech is, is probably the most abusive of all. It's like they're coordinating the whole story. The whole narrative is, is, it's the same. You know, I agree with you, but I heard something recently that rang true. Naval Ravikant, the, uh, you know, the angelist entrepreneur and sort of philosopher, he, he was talking about all this. And he said, you know, though, if you look throughout history, like technology, technological advances, society tends to lean left at these times, you know, so, and when, when we look at the media, it's completely technologically driven, right? right? The ability to reach more and more people is strictly a function of technology. You know, we went from print to, to TV to internet, and it just got wider and wider, and it leans harder and harder and harder left as that happens, right? When we were a print culture, I think we were, we were a lot more reasonable. We have plenty of so-called progressive ideas and things, and, you know, you know, then radio came and TV came and internet came and we, we just lean harder and harder left. So I don't think you need, you don't need an outright, you know, conspiracy of folks meeting clandestinely, but it, it leans that way anyway. It's, it's so very obviously leans that way that you can't dismiss it. And nowadays, I, see, I'm somebody who says bad ideas are on the right, bad ideas are on the left. You know, the government wins every election and the voters lose every election. So I don't really care. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and regardless so, of which political party wins, the government always wins. <laughs> which party is going to is going to run on shrinking the government? Yeah, no Nobody problem. wants that at this point. 
the, the electorate has thoroughly been inculcated. You know, we had these big leaps forward, basically, after the Civil War and then after the Great Depression and World War II. And, we, you know, we're thoroughly inculcated with this idea that government needs to do everything. So now the electorate is all about, hmm, which one of these guys is going to give my group more stuff? Yeah. You know, and it's group, right? It's, it's become pure collectivism. No matter how you slice it, there's no more place for the individual. So it's yeah. collectivism at the lobbyist level. It's the corporatocracy collectivism, right. yep. and um, you know that dinner that Gavin Newsom had uh, the other night when he broke the rules and you know completely just disregarded everything he tells everybody else to do. You know, it's, yep. it's unbelievable. Right. It's um, hypocrisy. I mean, I certainly have no problem with people going to a restaurant and not wearing a mask. I don't care. However, it is typical hypocrisy you know for thee the rules are for thee and not for me yeah of um, course and, and nancy pelosi at her hair salon and all the rest but right. um yeah. let's talk about what this means financially to us and and where the economy is going we started yes. out talking about how it's it's uneven is there a movement that i mean you know like do we need to worry about a bank collapse at the beginning of this i was quite worried about that you know i I entertained it for a short time. I mean, I didn't stay very worried about it, but, you know, the FDIC certainly can't insure all the deposits, not even close, but it, it just seems like no matter what the answer is, just print more money. You know, that's the way out of everything. And Jerome Powell's been extremely transparent, I mean, at least compared to Greenspan, about, you know, just look at whatever you need, rich uncle Jerome's going to print it <laughs> for you. Where, what does that all mean to us? Well, yeah, I mean, he recently said, you know, we can do more and Congress needs to do more in no uncertain terms. And Lagarde is saying the same thing over in Europe. So, you know, the, the fiscal stimulus needs to be greater and the central bank will do everything it can and all that. So that is happening. But if you're going to talk about the kind of, uh, you know, talk about a bank collapse and, and the FDIC, and then you mentioned money printing, and that is really, that's, if you want to think in terms of, um, economic deterioration. It revolves around the ability of the Federal Reserve to print money. And, and the scheme at this point is still the basic quantitative easing scheme. We hit return on the computer. We, uh, we you know, create money out of thin air, and then we buy securities with it. And we buy, right now we're buying debt, the Federal Reserve is buying debt securities, including corporate debt and ETFs and things, bond ETFs. So you look at that, it, that is actually a deflationary act. Because what you are doing is you are swapping. You, you know, the Fed, they don't buy securities because they're saving up for retirement or they're, you know, they want to have a portfolio of securities to uh, borrow money against to create a business. They're taking them out of the system and putting them on their balance sheet. And it effectively, the, the income disappears from the system. And now they've exchanged that for just a dollar of reserves. It just sits there. And if it isn't lent and spent, you don't get the very obvious, you know, inflationary rise in the price of things, assets, wages, et cetera. Right now, the, these operations really, they push the bond market around, that pushes interest rates around, and it has some kind of an impact on the, on the stock market as well. Although the, the, I recently saw a paper, there was an article in Barron's that said, yeah, the Fed put is real, but it really only is effective after, you know, in the time somewhat after a collapse. You need that downdraft for the market to really lean heavily on the Fed, so come on, do something, and then we'll start buying again. So what I was, I expect this to continue. I expect the Fed to keep the Bank of Japan playbook going, 
and maybe even go that one step further. You know, Bank of Japan, they were buying equities. Um, I think they may still be. I haven't kept up with that. But that's the that's the playbook, right? Print money, buy securities, buy bonds, then buy corporate bonds, then buy equities. Okay, maybe so that's the, that's the Bank of Japan playbook. And does it include... 230% debt to GDP ratio eventually? <laughs> well, yeah. Who cares about those numbers anymore, right? That's, oh, you know, Jason, you're, you're looking at the wrong numbers. You're, you're worried about the wrong stuff. It's how fast can we print more? We need to do more. That's the number they're worried about. Right. You know, a $7 trillion balance sheet. They're like, you know, we're going to need to jack this sucker up to 10 or something. That's what they're worried about. But yeah. Yeah, that comes with lots of lots more debt. And as Lacey Hunt and the folks at Hoising have pointed out, as they have for decades, you know, what happens is you we are to the point where you get some more debt, but that marginal investment from that debt is less and less and less productive. So this whole thing, it's just one giant, they're trying to stimulate, but the tool is not fit for the job. The tool of the central bank is not fit for the job of stimulating economic activity. What it is fit for is stimulating a, a depression. So then what happens? Well, they have a hammer in one hand and a mallet in the other, and they say, well, we, we broke it with this, and we're going to fix it with this. So they just keep printing more. And at some point, they will figure out, somebody will figure out how to do something like perhaps a Fannie and Freddie for corporate debt, let's just say, where they guarantee, you know, the Fed maybe, or some other agency guarantees corporate debt, oh, then it'll be lent and spent. Then you'll see the asset prices and the wages and the price of goods and services going up. You know, it, it'll happen. They'll do it. They'll push this thing around as hard as they can until they actually see inflation ticking up. You should take them at their word when they say that that's what they want to do. Yeah, they do want that. And they want a great reset, which maybe we can get to that. But Dan, yeah. explain to everybody why, and I agree with you, by the way, but why is it that the debt stops working or the stimulus stops working at a point? You mentioned that it gets less and less effective. I mean, I think a good metaphor for it, but you know, I'm not exactly sure I can explain it financially as well. But from a biological perspective, I'll explain it with caffeine, right? You know, if I drink three cups of coffee today, I'm going to have some good energy and, you know, I'm going to perk up and, you know, it's good. But if I drink 17 cups a day, it yeah. doesn't work anymore. In nope. fact, it has counteractive negative effects. Same with sugar, right? And, and same with, you know, addictions like alcohol and drugs, right? Uh, exactly. You know, a little bit of it, you know, is, you have a few drinks, you're, you're good. But, you know, you have five <laughs> drinks and that's really counterproductive, right? That's so what, why does yeah. it happen with, with the Fed and the Treasury and the government debt? What, what's happening there that makes that true? because they are pushing money on the system that might not have anything to do with it. I mean, there's only so much investment at any given moment in time, there's only so much investment that any, you know, the entrepreneurs of the world want to see happen. And if you say, well, you know, all the investment is done. I mean, this is hypothetical, obviously, a multi-trillion dollar economy is a much more complex thing, but let's just simplify and say, okay, all the investment in the world is done at this moment. And then the government says, well, we need more growth. So can we just give you the money for free or, you know, at a low interest rate, which is exactly what's happening now? Oh, well, sure, sure. You give me some cheap money and maybe guarantee it. Then, yeah, I got a couple of ideas. So the quality of investment just gets lower and lower and lower. And 
basically it's it's like it reminds me of the way people behave when they win the lottery right five years later or or, or in the dot in the first dot com bubble i think would be the perfect yeah. metaphor right, right. You know, these venture capitalists just threw money at these stupid ideas yep. and and the companies i visited a lot of them 20 years ago and you know they had the ferraris and the lamborghinis in the parking yeah. lot and these guys had the most tenuous dumb ideas, frankly. Yeah. And women.com, pets.com, peapodgrocer.com. It was a yeah, the sock puppet and, and yeah. the web van. And and there were worse. I mean, there were worse ideas than that even. But yeah. they were just, they had beautiful office furniture and lavish parties. And, you know, they just couldn't figure out how to spend the money. It made them right. very undisciplined. You know, it's like spoiling your kid, right? Same idea. Yeah. And, you know, what's happening right now? Well, you know, all the big hedge funds are longer on stocks than they've been in a long time. And people are buying more options as speculators, you know, all the Robinhood crowd and everybody are buying more options. People are opening more, you know, just regular online brokerage accounts. And it's super duper frothy. And of course, the S&P 500 is like 2.6 times sales, which actually that metric correlates extremely well with, with future 10-year returns. You know, it's higher than it's ever been, higher than the dot-com peak, higher than the 1929 peak. This is the most expensive market ever. And I think it's partially that way because, as the Barron's article pointed out, the Fed put is real. And, the you know, we, we hear stories of people gambling in the market with their stimulus checks as well. But I think the Fed put and the confidence that that gives people, it's real. And, man, you know, we're 60% off that March bottom right now. It's just been like... Whoosh, a rocket ship. And it went from, hey, this is not a bad opportunity here to this is the most insanely overvalued market in all of history like that. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So it is overvalued. Without a doubt. Without any doubt. Jeremy How do you Grantham know? Says, Jeremy Grantham says this is the third real McCoy bubble he's seen you know, in the past couple decades. And those people studied bubbles. They studied a few few dozen of these things. They know from bubbles. And then he says, this is it. This is one. It's been crazy. And he's right. Um, so does that mean tech stocks? Does it mean the S&P? Does it mean the entire economy? Yes. I, yes. I, I, I don't know that it means inexpensive bread and butter housing. I think that's pretty sound still, but it's going up. It, it'll probably reach a bubble at some point. But right now, yeah. housing's cheap because interest rates are cheap, you know? Right. Now, I could, if I wanted to really nitpick with you, Jason, I could take issue with the idea of valuations based on the level of interest rates. Yeah. But well, I think with housing, you're and, right. And I would nitpick with you, too. I agree with you because it is a credit-based asset. Yeah, uh, but yeah. the, the, here's the funny thing, though. See, real estate's a little different, and here's why. I know the famous last words this time. It's different. Right. Right? It's, I'm not saying this time it's different, but no. the thing you've got is you've got these people that take out these three decade long mortgages where they don't have to pay them off till 2050. Oh my God. That's yep. incredible. Right. Yeah. And the interest rates are negative today in real terms. No yeah. one could argue that we have negative interest rates. No one except a Keynesian Democrat, right. They could probably argue with That's that, right. yep. uh, but they would be wrong. So all of us people in the know know that we have negative interest rates, right. On mortgages for three decades. And you have this safeguard where you never have to get a margin call. You can, even if rates go up to 14, 18%, 
all those people that have those incredibly low mortgage rates, that just makes the value of their properties even higher. And this, the new properties, no one will be buying more properties because rates will be so high, right? But the current properties, people would just keep them like they keep a rent-controlled apartment. Exactly. Right? Same thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So like one of my team members, he has a rent-controlled apartment in San Francisco that he and his wife got in 1996. And it's now probably worth like $1.7 million or so. They pay $2,400 a month, I think. Okay. Like they're never giving that thing up. Never. No. But they really want to move. Like it could be nicer. You know, the problem with those rent controlled places, the owner never has any incentive to fix them up. You know, so why would they fix them up? They're not going to get more rent. So nope. there's just, just capitalism works both ways, right? You know, that people with these cheap rates that never get called in for three decades, I don't know. It is different. But go ahead and nitpick. I like nitpicking. No, it's fine. I agree with you. What, what would a rational person do presented with interest rates at this level? Well, if the money's so cheap, you trade it for something that you think is going to be valuable in 30 years. You do exactly this. And, and it's, it, it is exactly correct. I, I, I you know, I think the real nitpick that I that I have is really with Warren Buffett, who kind of moved the goalpost and said, well, you know, he used to look at, at market cap to GDP, total U.S. market cap to GDP. That's higher than it's ever been in history. It's pushing toward 170 percent. It's never been there before. It's like 166 wow. last time I looked. Yeah, hugely high. And then he stopped talking about that when it got too high. And now he says, well, you know, if, if interest rates stay this low for, for a long time, uh, stocks are a good deal today. And that's a big if in my book. That's a real big if. And it's not the way to think about the value of the stream of cash flows at all, in my opinion. This will be continued on the next episode. Thank you for listening and happy investing. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.